Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be successful for myself. I mean, for my own career. I mean, I didn't want to be a failure. I didn't want to go out in a blaze of shame or be that woman who brought those charges against that honorable man. I mean, Mm -hmm. who wants to be that? I had just watched the whole Anita Hill thing play out and saw this incredibly brave, well-spoken woman. Yeah. just blows my mind how poised and in command she was in that situation and in the way she was treated as as being less than and i was pretty familiar with women being treated as less than less than men less worthy less valued less valuable and so it was very easy for me to kind of believe that on some level and to be silenced You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to be joined by Ruth Everhart. Um, She's written a couple incredible books, and I'm really excited to talk to her uh, specifically just about sexual abuse within churches. And, um, you know, Ruth, as as I kind of was reading through, uh, starting to read through your book and, and trying to uh, get a grasp of your story. What fascinated me is that even though you're in, you know, the PCUSA, uh, how similar all of these stories are, whether it's uh, an IFB church, whether it's Presbyterian church, whether, you know, uh, I know in your book, you mentioned, uh, you know, Anita Hill, when you're dealing with organizations, you know, there's, th- these stories share very similar uh, buildup, similar execution of the abuse. Um, but but just for audience who isn't familiar with you, can you just give a little bit of context about um, kind of your initial experiences in ministry and how it quickly became abusive? Right. So um, I'm a Presbyterian pastor and I was ordained in 1990. At the time that um, I was ordained, I had previously suffered uh, sexual abuse that was 
extreme and it was um, at the hands of a stranger. I'd been the victim of a stranger uh, break-in into my home and someone who had a gun. And so I had that history around me and um, I uh, had dealt with it. You know, this was had, now was 10 years in my past. But one of the things that's um, interesting to me is the way uh, predators seem able to kind of sniff out victims in terms of people who have sexual shame or some kinds of an issue over them. So what happened was that I, I, I experienced this terrible, terrible assault um, in college. I ended up writing a book about it later, a memoir. But it was, it was very life-changing and went through a lot of work of, of healing and doing all the things I was supposed to do to kind of recover from that. I kind of created a new faith that was a larger faith that allowed me as a woman to enter ministry, which was not true of the, um, the area I grew up in, the denomination I grew up in. So this was a shift for me. And I think it showed my healing. And, you know, I plunged into ministry just so ready to serve the Lord and to exercise my gifts in ministry. I had a husband, I had two very small children, uh, two daughters, and was called to serve a church across the country from where I lived. So I and my family relocated and we were told that this was a very plum kind of position. I was really a fortunate person to be called to it. And this was my first um, job in ministry as a ordained minister. And in fact, I was ordained to that position, which means that it was my boss, the senior pastor, who kind of performed my ordination. He preached at it. And he was the first one to lay his hands on my head and to, um, to ordain me in this new call. And uh, it turned out that within a year, he was laying his hands on me um, for much more nefarious purposes, which was to, to assault me, to um, physically grab my body, to kiss me, um, against my will as I sat in my church office working. So that's in a thumbnail, um, some of my experiences of assault, uh, assault and how they interface, interlock with church contexts. Right, right. You, you already hit on something that, that hit me as I read the book. And it was, um, you know, it's something I wouldn't have, it probably wouldn't have jumped out to me as clearly had I not been doing this show for so long and now talking with so many people who've experienced similar uh, forms of abuse. And uh, one of the things early on was when you mentioned going out to dinner with this pastor and um, really he was just saying, you know, we need to, we need to get to know each other. We're going to be working together. And uh, you disclosed that previous abuse and he latched onto that and, and started asking very detailed questions about that. And uh, you kind of allude to this, but a lot of times predators of, of any type, whether it's dealing with children, whether it's dealing with adults, they grasp onto some kind of previous trauma. And um, now obviously you've spent a lot of time researching this. You spent a time, a lot of time dissecting your own story. Uh, why do you think that is? What do you think it is that draws people to be able to identify those things and really, you know, use those as leverage in, in relationships? 
Well, I think they're looking for vulnerabilities and uh, wherever we have our vulnerabilities, we have a place that can be a place of weakness. Of course, we like to talk about the fact that our vulnerabilities also make us strong and that we are you know, stronger at the broken places and the broken places are where the light gets in and all those things which are true. But before that, um, they are places of weakness. And um, and I think that predators know that instinctively. They, um, they sniff it. They smell it. I mean, this is why you look at boys who've been abused frequently come from homes without a strong father figure. Um, it, that is something that uh, uh, people will look for. So I think in my case, when I disclosed to this pastor in terms of talking about my spiritual journey, I mean, he was asking me about my spiritual journey. I wanted to be a whole person. I wanted to have recovered from this and I wanted to have let it be redeemed in my life. And so I didn't want to hold it as a secret any longer. It was part of my my healing to be able to speak about it in a way that wasn't ashamed. And yet, you know, I was still a lot younger than I am now. I had therefore had less time to process it. I had been in, a, in a, an environment that really was not supportive of my healing. So I, um, so I'm sure that as I communicated it, there may have been hesitation and shame and a sense of, of, um, of weakness about it that he was quick to latch onto and then to use it. See, the other thing is sexual abuse is the abuse of power. Mm -hmm. uh, but people who don't know that think that the sexual abuse is about sex. Yeah. And so he used it as a way to talk about sex with me, which is something else that um, women especially will encounter with, with, with predators or with, with creepy guys when they just take advantage of any moment to bring up the issue of sex and religious guys will do this in ways that are very roundabout. Right. Um, because they're very uptight about sex. And so this was something that the senior pastor did. Yeah. Do you, do you think that when he, cause this is the other thing that comes up. I just interviewed someone who, you know, um, he speaks on this topic and he, he actually ended up reporting his own father um, for, for sexual abuse. And one of the questions that I asked him was, you know, he, he was very heavy on the fact, like everything is orchestrated, you know, the, mm. the career is orchestrated, you know, uh, you're, you're grooming, not just your victim, you're grooming the people around them. You're grooming the parents of the victim. You're grooming the spouse sometimes, depending on the situation. Um, so it, it's very elaborately planned, you know, even if it feels unintentional for them, they know they have this strategy that they tend to follow. Do you feel like there was a weakness sensed before that? Do you think when that initial, like even prior to the ordination, do you think this was part of a plan or do you think it's something that something switched in the relationship where he thought, you know, now I can take advantage of this situation? I don't really uh, know the answer to that question. Um, he was not one of the people that I interviewed with when I flew out for the interview. And mm. so that when I would, he wasn't part of the hiring process. So it was more like I showed up and um, um, I think he was just all about having his hands on a young, attractive woman that he had access to. Right. Um, 
which is another really common thread. The, the, what you're talking about too, with the vulnerabilities and what I was saying before, I mean, I think that's very true. And like the, one of the stories I tell in this book talks about how a predator groomed a whole congregation, a large, he was a youth pastor and he, he bamboozled everyone. And that was very intentional. And I try to really dissect how that happens. Um, in my case, I think it was, um, there are just men who have power, who are used to having power. And um, if their sexuality has gone underground, you know, in this case, this um, fellow was recently widowed and he was not, he didn't have any wisdom about his own being. And it was like all his, whatever his unfinished business was, whatever his issues were, you know, it was like, it was a big hot potato and he was going to hand it to me hmm. and he was going to be inappropriate with me. And that was going to become his issues were going to become my problem, hmm. which is one of the huge dynamics in sexual abuse. When a man's sexuality becomes a woman's problem. Hmm. You said, you said an interesting phrase. You said he didn't have wisdom about his own being. What did you mean by that? I mean, he, uh, his, his, his own grief, his own, his own sexuality, his own sexual needs, his, the ways in which spirituality and sexuality are entwined. I think that it takes a lot of wisdom as a faith leader to know your own boundaries and to, you know, be able to contain your own anxiety and to be a non-anxious presence and to be able to draw on scripture in appropriate and helpful ways and tell people, you know, to suggest to them that we pause and listen for the Holy Spirit, that we let God lead us. All these things that leaders have to do, they kind of assume that we have done our own internal work and we know why we're drawn to Jesus. You know, what is, what is it we're trying to do? You know, when we, you know, being a, a faith leader is this really uniquely intimate process with other people. And if you haven't, if you don't know who you are and what you're about, uh, it's very easy to, to like trod on other people in the process because you, you're given this such a unique window into their lives. I mean, spirituality is a very intimate thing. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a very, I mean, in terms of, of, in terms of having power, I mean, that's a very, you have pretty much unprecedented access to everybody. I mean, you've got, you'll see pastors wield that power from the pulpit as they make examples of someone in the, in the auditorium who they counseled the week before. I mean, you can see this really get out of hand. We've seen it with huge names. We've seen it with the, the Mark Driscoll's in the evangelical world. We've seen it happen in the, um, with sexual abuse, you know, with, I mentioned Jack Scopp on the podcast and things like that. Um, yeah, the power dynamic is a huge part of it. And I think it also explains why so many abusers get drawn to the pastorate. You know, a lot of people who it's the same thing I say with law enforcement, you know, yes, there's a lot of good people, but it pretty much splits down the middle. What I see is you have people who truly want to be helping as many people as they can. And you have people who say, you know, I want to wield authority over people. Those are the two personalities. So you've got these very pure people who take ministry roles. And then you've got these very kind of aggressive CEO type, you know, personalities. Um, speaking, speaking to the power, what, what time period was all of this? What, what time period was the, um, were these situations? 
This was from 1990 to 1993. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought that's what I had seen in the book was it was like, it was like mid nineties. So speaking again to the power thing, obviously your book is called me too, you know, the reckoning. And so um, the me too movement has kind of made this conversation come out from beneath the surface. We're talking about it. Um, There's a lot of, I guess you could say empowerment while there's still years of work to be done here. Um, in the mid nineties, this was not a conversation people were having. So how did that affect the situation then versus, you know, how do you think the situation would have been different if it had been handled now where you would have had that kind of public understanding of what was happening? Well, I had tried to use the tools that were appropriate at the time, using my personnel committee and so on at church and didn't really get any satisfaction. I didn't feel heard. I was just, it was treated as a problem. That was my problem. Hmm. And so um, I did, you know, I, I was told to make the problem go away. So I went away. I got a different church and I moved on. Um, And what happened is then I kind of cycled back to that um, period in my life. And I brought an an ecclesiastical charge. I brought charges against that senior pastor for Mm. his abuse. So, um, and I did that in um, 2011. I'd have to double check the dates. But um, so in terms of the shift, one reason I could go back and do that was because there had been a shift in the way the world um, reacted to abuse and harassment. I mean, in the nineties, we didn't even have the term sexual harassment that got really brought to the forefront uh, because of the Anita Hill case and Clarence Thomas. Before that, we didn't really have a word for that icky stuff that guys do to women. And um, so that was, it was new. So, so my story kind of shows this progression and change um, because it happened when it was impossible to talk about. And then I brought it, I brought these charges at a time when it it was just kind of starting to pull apart and you Mm -hmm. could kind of, the statute of limitations had been lifted about that. And I, um, and so I brought the charge through the church, which, you know, I don't want to say it was toothless. It felt kind of toothless at the time. Hmm. Yeah, I would say it was pretty toothless. Um, but then I think that now, you know, the Me Too movement really started in 2017. No. So it's a couple of years old. And as you say, there's plenty of work to do. But I think even between the time that I brought the charges and that Me Too movement began, there's been, you know, a, it's become more and more understood that these are things that have to be dealt with. They can't stay underground. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned, I, I told you before we started recording, I, I, I had actually watched a documentary um, about Anita Hill last night and um, and then reading through, I was I was reading through your book, you know, the, the excerpt I had gotten this morning and you'd mentioned Anita Hill and I was like, that's such an interesting coincidence that I had just watched it. And with that context so recent, you know, I shared that same kind of shock of like, you know, Clarence Thomas, you know, that, that whole situation and it's funny because growing up in fundamentalist circles, I had always heard the name Anita Hill, but it was always, it was this woman who brought these crazy allegations to try to destroy this man's career. And um, that was always the narrative that I'd heard. And then watching the the full story laid out and watching clips from it and seeing the, the 
witnesses spread out across, you know, who all corroborated these exact same stories was absolutely crazy that it just, it didn't have any effect, you know, I mean, it, it had an effect since, and I think it, it had more effect on like the general culture and how we view this stuff. But in that case, she was, I mean, like you say in the book, the deck was stacked against her, you know, like this, she had less power. And um, I, I mean, it was, it was crazy watching just the footage of it. I was just shocked because I'd never seen any footage from it. And, you know, some of the, uh, some of the people questioning her, you know, saying like, oh, well, that's not so bad what he said here, or that's not, this isn't that bad. We say this kind of stuff all the time. And you're like, maybe it's just bad at scale. <laughs> like maybe this is just a problem that, you know, it's just become normalized. Um, but one of the things that, that stood out, like I mentioned is, you know, obviously I think her being a female put her in a pretty negative position at that time. Um, I have to look at in church context. I mean, female leadership in the church is, uh, a slightly controversial topic, we could say. Um, and would you say at that time too, was there still a, a stigma against like when you take a leader who's a female versus a male leader, do you think that that was used or held against you a little bit as you went through that that process? Oh, yeah. I was the first uh, female pastor at that church. I was an associate pastor mm -hmm. for youth and families. Um, that was my official title, but I was the first woman to hold any pastoral role in that church, which by the way, was true of also the next church I went to. Wow. Um, I'm not that old, but I was a groundbreaker in first um, pretty much every church I served. And that's its own stigma. Absolutely. Because you are not just Ruth, you're a female pastor as if mm -hmm. this is what all female pastors are. So it's a huge burden to carry. And it also means that you are just, um, you're fingered all the time as, you know, anything, any foible about you, any quirk, any, any, any habit you have is, you know, attributed to your, your sex, your gender. And, you know, I'm just a person trying to serve the Lord, right. <laughs> follow my call. And, you know, it's con con constantly coming up about what the limitations should be put on you because, because of this. Yeah. Did, did you have any sense of fear? Cause I mean, like, again, and it's, it's funny you say, you know, you're not that old and you were still a groundbreaker in so many areas. And that shows how recent it's been that we've started kind of working through some of these things that we've never thought about, like things that have just been taken for granted. Um, it, it's crazy that in the nineties, you can still be ground breaking new ground, you know, like that there's still things that can be done. I I'm just, I, I well, have to wonder. It's crazy that it took until yesterday for us to have a female Madam Vice President. Right. I'm, right. I mean, not as far evolved as we like to think. And a person of color <laughs> for, yes. uh, you know, on top of that. But I, I, I have to wonder too, did you recognize I mean, obviously, you know, I know you felt the weight of like being, you know, the first female, you know, ordained person, you, you felt the weight of being like, you know, being in that role, there's eyeballs on you. Like people are wondering what's going to be like when it came time to bring up these, these accusations, when it came time to bring these charges, was there part of you that thought, you know, having watched all of these other situations unfold, not in favor of the woman and seeing people get, you know, blasted publicly over situations like this. Was there part of you that felt a pressure to be quiet, to, to try to not bring any negative attention toward 
you know, potentially other females that were breaking into this territory? Did you feel like, man, I'm, I'm given this position to, you know, kind of change perspectives here. Will this affect that? Was there any of that oh, pressure absolutely. on you? Right. Absolutely. I wanted to be successful. I wanted mm-hmm. to be successful for myself. I mean, for my own career. I mean, I didn't want to be a failure. I didn't want to go out in a blaze of shame or yeah. be that woman who brought those charges against that honorable man. I mean, mm-hmm. who wants to be that? I had, just watched the whole Anita Hill thing play out and saw this incredibly brave, well-spoken woman. Yeah. Um, just blows my mind how poised and in command she was in that situation. And in the way she was treated as, as being less than, and I was pretty familiar with women being treated as less than, less than men, less worthy, less valued, less valuable. And so it was very easy for me to kind of believe that on some level and to be silenced. And and that's not exactly a new thing. That's why when I tell this story, I intertwine it with a story from scripture, which is the story of the rape of Tamar, who was assaulted by her brother Amnon and silenced by her brother Absalom. Because you read that story in scripture in 2 Samuel, you're going to see all these same dynamics. It's not like we only can look at Anita Hill or Ruth Everhart. I mean, there's just, a, there's centuries, there's millennia of women being treated like this, of mm-hmm. being abused and then being silenced. Right. Yeah. And why do you think, so obviously, like much of your, I mean, your book is dealing a lot with, with the church, you know, it deals a lot with, with it being an issue. So we look at the Me Too movement. It's easy to say like, well, of course, you know, it's the, the scuzzy Hollywood producer. We know that stereotype, but it's shocking to know it happens within the church. And, and as you mentioned, um, you know, it's something that's happened. You can see it in the Bible, even though we don't tend to read into some of these things that way. I mean, the story of, David and Bathsheba, you know, is often a story that gets twisted to be about Bathsheba taking a bath on the roof. Like, why was she doing that? You know, we, we twist a lot of these stories. Um, but, but I, I have to ask, like, why do you think this abuse is just as prevalent, if not maybe even more so in churches than it is within, you know, a lot of other avenues. And it, it seems like there should be some difference in the amount that's coming out of churches versus coming out of a production studio or a, you know, fortune 500 company, but it's starting to seem like there's an equal amount of abuse across the, across the board. Well, I think that churches are often kind of naive and, uh, act as if they don't have power. We don't talk about power and we're not, um, as, is alert to how it gets abused. You know, a, 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 a powerful leader in a church might say, oh, I don't desire to have power. I just want to serve Jesus. You heard me say that. There's a way in which we want to pretend that that power isn't part of the dynamic. And so I think it goes underground. And I think, you know, you look at, 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 at pastoral leadership, it helps a lot if you're charismatic. And so I think that charismatic people who are often narcissistic um, often rise to positions of power. I mean, we actually have seen that played out politically for the mm-hmm. last four years. Wait, um, not, we have this <laughs> rising to power. So I, and I think that churches sometimes don't have the language to talk about it, or it's seen as being worldly and we're seen as being above all that. And I think it's easy for predators to really play that card 
um, I think I think there's predators, and then I do think there are there are people who 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 are weak and and and, and unaware, and and they are opportunistic, hmm. and they take advantage of the power that they're they're given. And you know, churches didn't used to talk about boundaries so much. I mean, we didn't used to have child protection policies or, right. uh, you know, vulnerable person protection policies. And so people were allowed to get away with a lot. And um, I mean, I think Harvey Weinstein and, and Matt Lauer and guys like that, as you mentioned, the Hollywood types, they were allowed to get away with stuff too. But I think there was... Um, I, I think that at least there's the awareness that everybody knows those guys are powerful. They have a lot of money and so on. They wield that power. They, 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 they flex that power. Yeah. And yeah. it is, it's, it's, that's really interesting that we don't even have the conversation or acknowledge it because I think sometimes a lot of times in church culture, and I, I think I want to be careful. How I say this, I think, cause I think in some ways it's accurate. We, we tend to focus on, the pastor is so burdened. The pastor is so, is carrying the weight of so much. And that's the conversation there's a, and I think that's true. I think there is a, a sense in which pastors are burdened, you know, and, and you would know, I mean, there's, there's a weight that you carry, but I think sometimes we tend to look at pastors as kind of inherent victims. You know, they're dealing with a congregation. They're, they're dealing with the problems of their, of their people. But also, yeah, like you said, we don't talk about power. The, the amount of power that you have where 300 people will sit in a room and listen to your advice, that's, a, that's, a, that's an extreme amount of power, you know, or the, the amount of, you know, when someone will come to you when their marriage is falling apart, what would you do? Where would you tell your kid to go? How would you deal with this situation? Um, in some churches, that gets to the point of, should I buy a car? Like there's really, Mm -hmm. if the right person's in that role, there's a lot of power you can do. And going back to that conversation of identifying trauma for, for a predatory person in a position like that, you literally have people coming to you, telling you what their weakness is, what their, you're meeting them at at a weak moment of their life. You're meeting them, you know, it's like being in the emergency room or you're meeting people when they are feeling hurt, they're experiencing their hurt and they are looking for something. They're looking for help. And so, yeah, someone can take, take advantage of that. Absolutely. Right. So uh, awareness is one thing. So we know that this is a problem. I mean, there's, uh, like I said, the me too movement, your book deals with that a lot. The church Too movement has now sprouted. You know, I have a podcast that deals specifically and exclusively with this topic. So the awareness is there. People are starting to recognize it, but awareness doesn't solve the problem. It, It identifies it. But as you're looking at this and saying, you know, okay, we've got this exposure happening what do you think needs to happen over the next couple of years within the church to make the church a safer place to kind of fortify the church against this sort of thing? Right. I talk about that quite a bit in the book. I have a chapter about a way forward in which I outline what congregations can do and what denominations can, can do. And like, just for example, one thing that a congregation can do is tell its own story more honestly. Like I would, wager that many of the uh, people listening to this podcast have been members of churches that have abuse in the background and the abuse is still secret and it hasn't it's it's or it surfaced and it was squashed and so I think that one place to start is to simply to tell the truth 
I mean, that's one thing we have really learned the power of the truth, right? And so if a church can begin to admit the truth, then that's the first step towards, towards looking at, at what is. Right. And, you know, I think another thing um, churches can do is to look at the gender dynamics. Are all the people in positions of power male to the people who are, um, uh, to the people, you know, is there, is there a disconnect between a person's education and their role and their title and what the power they actually wield? Like, let's just look at these dynamics and what is it that we believe about women that still poison the situation? Do we believe that women are somehow on the make, you know, or that somehow women are gratified and happy to have people make comments about their body? You know, the, the um, comments that aren't so bad, according to um, the other folks listening to the Clarence Thomas testimony, because there's still an assumption about what women, what women like or what, what's appropriate. And all those kinds of things that I think churches are very bad at talking about there. We talk about sex only in terms of what the hard and fast rules against it are. And they're all these big no's. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, no, and she just brought that up because I just, uh, I, I think you were just on her podcast, actually. I just had Sheila uh, Gregoire on and uh, she does a lot of great writing in this area as well. Um, but yeah, the way that we, we've kind of consumerized sex in the sense of, you know, you don't watch porn, you get married and have sex. You don't, you know, you don't uh, have fights. You, you know, have sex to please your husband and keep him happy. Your husband won't have affairs if you let him do this. And it removes that humanity away from the female. And, and I think this touches on an important point and it's something, you know, uh, you know, I I'm sitting here, I came out of the IFB, went to the, you know, SBC and was attending there and thought, oh, okay, I'm out of the, I'm out of this. And now I'm seeing so much in the Southern Baptist convention that's echoing that and uh, refusal to deal with it. I mean, it was, it's been months. People have been asking JD Greer to address a, you know, hiring somebody covered sexual abuse. And now they're finally doing something just because of pressure. Um, so there's, there's a lot of issues there. One thing I will say that I agree with you on is that um, there has been a lack of female voice in the church. And, and this is something that happened just recently. There's a well-known independent Baptist pastor who's spoken out about abuse and he, he was going to do a conference addressing, you know, abuse, rape in the church, things like that. And he didn't want to have any female speakers at the event because he didn't believe in having women stand in his pulpit. And again, whether you, you know, you can get in the theological conversation about the role of a pastor and elder, but you cannot address you cannot address the female experience of abuse from a male's perspective. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, that would be like you and me deciding that we are going to do a conference on racism and <laughs> we're only going to have white people because, right. because, because, I mean, if follow this all the way through, because we don't think that black people deserve to be at the podium. That's exactly that, that's a parallel commentary. And, and that's obviously problematic. I mean, right. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. And, and so, I mean, this is kind of a question that answers itself, but I mean, do you think that the fact that most churches 
organizations, um, you know, denominations are exclusively male led has contributed to abuse within the church. Let me just softball that question out. <laughs> really, that's a really. <laughs> to me, it's just so obvious that right. if women are not as good as men, if Jesus doesn't love them quite as much and they don't really have anything to say, that is going to attri- contribute to the dynamic that they can be abused. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's my hard hitting question. Uh, we had, I know we had to think deeply about it. Um, but <laughs> let me get back to you. Right. Um, no, that's something that you mentioned. Um, it's, it's one of the things that you've brought up a few times is that, you know, misogyny is not new. Like it was something that happened in, you know, we see that throughout Jesus ministry. Um, I, I'm curious if you could kind of expound on that a little bit. And, um, you know, it's one thing to say that it's, it's easy to say, well, misogyny was a thing, even in Jesus day. Um, what are some of the key stories? Like if someone's saying like, well, show me like open the Bible and show me examples of this, where would you take them to kind of prove that point? Well, one of the stories that I use in my book, because I think it does a really good job of doing just that is Jesus healing the bleeding woman the, or the woman with the flow of blood or the hemorrhaging woman, however you want to call her, her story is sandwiched in with the healing of Jairus's daughter. And um, so I treat it as the healing of these two daughters, um, Jairus's daughter and the bleeding woman and how Jesus, um, Jesus heals both of them. This, this bleeding woman is a very important story because the, the infirmity that she's suffering is a, female sickness. It's a, it's a, it's a disease that a man could not have. She's not, I, I, I talk about in the book, how, when I was a kid, I thought, you know, that she hurt her elbow and she was hurt bleeding from her elbow. And it just wouldn't stop, which means that I totally did not get this story because it's really important to understand where she's bleeding from, you know, what blood this is. This is menstrual blood. This is, um, this is a condition, probably dysmenorrhea, or where she was bleeding constantly, which meant that she was very anemic. She was, uh, this was life-threatening. It also meant that because of the purity laws of the day that her social world had been restricted to, to herself, basically. Her world would have been herself and her husband, but I'm, she didn't have a husband. I'm sure a husband would have discarded her as being worthless because what was she good for? And so she is this woman in absolute crisis, and her crisis is a very female crisis. There is not a man. You couldn't substitute a man in that story and have the same story. And yet Jesus seeks her out, you know, and calls her daughter. And heals her. A, a woman who's probably, you know, the age of his mother or aunt or something or grandmother even. So it's it's a, it's a story. It's really a profound story of Jesus seeing a woman in all her femaleness and treating her as a child of God. Hmm. There's nothing second class about the way Jesus treats this woman. Hmm. And I think that here we're given this story and here, I was saturated in the Bible growing up. I went to Sunday school and Christian schools all my life and church twice on Sunday and catechism class and youth group and the whole shebang. No clue about this story. So I think that it's really good for your listeners who are biblically literate, you know, to really open their Bible onto that story and, and kind of fully take in 
the degree to which Jesus is pushing against misogyny, the, the, the degree to which he is not allowing the norms of his day to control his behavior. I mean, you could also talk about Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, right. or you could tell the story he told the parable of the persistent widow and the um, unjust judge, which is another story I um, use in a chapter of the book, which is my like hands down favorite mm. um, fabulous story told in three sentences that you can just really unpack. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting going through that lens. And I mean, it's, it's, I, I think again, it's it's so much of scripture is like this, where you know people have the verse that they go to and they they use it to. Uh, I just talking with Sheila today, um, which again I'll just plug her book, The Great Sex Rescue, that's coming out very soon. Um, you know, she talks about this, like the the verses that we go to. So we we talk about you know don't uh, don't deprive your husband, you know, don't deprive each other of sex, like that. The, people go to that verse. Um, I believe it's in First Corinthians. And, uh, you know, we, we use that verse to, to basically allow guys to say, Hey, anytime I want sex, you need to be ready to go. And, and we use that verse and, and that's our go-to verse. And I think same thing with scripture, we take certain verses, you know, we take certain verses about female leadership. We take certain verses about, you know, the role of women with relation to their husband. Um, perfect example of this is like, you know, uh, women submit to your husbands, you know, when you look at that and then you, you just take that out and you enlarge it and blast it in people's faces, it, it can be a pretty domineering kind of patriarchal for lack of a better word I- environment. But then you see, you know, men love your husbands as Christ loved the church. You recognize that dynamic is not an abusive authoritarian position. You know, it, it, it gives you more light and the Bible always does that. It'll give you it'll give you some command or some, some order or some, some thought. And then the, the passage surrounding it gives so much context or, or even a book, two books before it will shed so much light on how to interpret that. And I think so many times, and again, I think this goes to a lot of when men are, are teaching what a passage means. A lot of times you'll have men who use it and leverage it to give themselves power and so what I've really appreciated, I, I've read, I mean, I've, I've just started really reading again. Like, I, I feel like once I had a, once I had my daughter three years ago, it like paused my reading schedule for like forever and the last year or so. And then going to this year, I've read several books and I've been almost exclusively reading female authors. And it's like a lot of passages, it's like reading the Bible for the first time or reading that passage for the first time, because I'm not looking at it from this lens of how does this mean that men are in authority, you know, in this position, or how does this not, it's just going into it and seeing, even, even if it's not just about that, just seeing a different gender's perspective on a passage or, um, you know, like I've been, I've been listening to people, um, you know, like Eric Mason or Jamar Tisby and, and, you know, you're, you're seeing their perspective. And even when it's not on race, seeing their perspective, from a, a black man's perspective or seeing it, it's, it's eye opening, you know, it, and it, it really speaks to the fact that, you know, you can, you're limited, you're limiting yourself when you're just sitting there listening to old white men <laughs> examining a passage. It, it's, it's totally, it's like you said, it, it's when you have a conference on, on, you know, race and you only have white men speaking, it becomes very difficult to come to a real helpful conclusion. 
you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of uh, opinions that aren't rooted in actual experience. So. Well, there's this sense sometimes that we kind of can come to the Bible, like we're at tabula rasa, you know, we're Mm. a blank slate and we're just going to open it and we're just going to read it. We're going to see the plain meaning of the text. And that's what a white guy in this pulpit's going to do for us. And the truth is that when we come to the scripture, we bring our whole story with us. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm a writer. And so I know that narrative is everything, but point of view within narrative is everything. So we never come to a scripture story without having a point of view. And here's, here's, here's just a little takeaway. When we read a story about Jesus, if we don't consciously decide whose point of view we're going to take, we will default into Jesus' point of view. Mm. So a lot of bad theology surfaces because people are unconsciously inserting themselves into Jesus' viewpoint or what they think that would have been without even really understanding the culture of the day that he really moved. I mean, we're not. Most of us, without studying it, are not going to be like experts on, you know, first century Palestine, right? Right. And what the actual culture was like. So, but we we default into this role of what we think Jesus was, which was, uh, you know, a white guy flexing his power because he had, you know, his his dad was God. Yeah. You right. know, so and all of that is a bastardization of what Scripture really is. I mean, hermeneutic is everything how we break open scripture. And the reason people go to seminary is to learn to do that, to do what you call exegesis, which is to break open a passage. And that's when the Holy Spirit can like show us what's there. And there's this been this assumption that this is something that white men do. And so now when black men or black women or white women read it and say, you know, I have a really different lens on this. I mean, right. This was really what broke open with liberation theology back in the day when I was in seminary. It's been around a couple of decades. We need to learn to examine our point of view. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that goes back to Charles Sheldon's, you know, in his steps, you know, we think about what would Jesus do and we, we try to live like him, but the reality is in many of these stories, like you said, we're, we need to examine the other perspectives of this. And one thing I notice that I catch myself doing is that your default position in, in the Bible is to align yourself with the hero of each story. And when you read the Bible like that, um, perfect example of this is many people leaving, uh, you know, the independent Baptist world, for example, are quick to point to the verses about Pharisees and align that and say, that's always about the independent Baptist movement that I came out of. And while I think that's certainly applicable, there's many times that we leaving a certain denomination or we speaking to certain issues can become pharisaical in ourselves and say, well, like, thank God, I'm not like this person. Thank God I'm not him. And I think coming to scripture, like you said, and even, even, you know, consciously making a decision, like reading the passage from each person's perspective, like what is, because more often than not, you might be the bad guy in that story. You might be the the person who's asking Christ questions, trying to trip him up. You might be the the person who's looking down on the person who's, you know, you know, giving her perfume to Christ. Like you might be any one of those characters. And um, it is, it's really fascinating. And and like I mentioned, and like you've said, like I just think it's so important for, you know, and, and this is not discrediting. I think there's a lot of value in reading, you know work from Puritans, a lot of value in reading works from, uh, you know, Baptists and Charles Spurgeon and, and reading from, we need to know our roots to know all that. Yeah. Yeah, But, but, 
you also, I think there's so many, one, I mean, just culturally, like there, there, some people didn't have the opportunity to write. And there's some amazing, I mean, there's some amazing theological work happening from people of color who, you know, are, are contemporary voices that we're just avoiding altogether because we're stuck reading these, you know, books from the 1500s, 1600s from these, you know, again, incredible authors, but you're seeing one perspective and in the church of the church, big C of, uh, uh, is, is such a multifaceted, beautiful, you know, mosaic of different voices and different people. And so there's so many perspectives to hear and, and listen to. So, but, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate, I mean, I, I, I speak of different perspectives and voices. I think that's exactly what your, your book represents. And I think, um, you know, it's, like I said, it's sad that in 2020, uh, you know, that we're still having to address these issues and actually 21 now. Oh, oh goodness. Well, you know, 2020, can we just say it never started and just, uh, <laughs> but uh, 2021, um, you know, we're still wrestling through these issues. And, but like you said, um, it, it's, it's very sad that 1990s still groundbreaking, still, still changing the conversation and still so much to do. But um, I appreciate you engaging just thoughtfully with the Me Too movement, with, um, you know, kind of church culture and abuse. And uh, obviously, it's something that I'm very passionate about with with this show. Um, but for, for those who are wanting to connect with you, they're wanting to hear more from your voice, your perspective. Um, obviously, they can pick up, pick up a copy of your book in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd encourage people to check out? Any resources, um, websites, anything you'd like to like people to connect with you through? I'd love to have you come over to my website, which is just my name, um, RuthEverhart.com. I've got a blog that's been going on for some 13 years now. And um, there are some free resources that are devotionals that um, you can download. And um, I love hearing from my readers. You can contact me through that website. I'm also on, I have Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, but I am kind of a failure at Instagram. No worries. No worries. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and for sharing your perspective. And I hope everybody listening, just take a second, just buy the book now before you forget, just go to the show notes, uh, grab a copy of Me And you Too, can get it in Audible, by the way, if you are a listener, if you're awesome. a podcast listener, you can get the book in Audible and have somebody read it to you. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, definitely guys go check that out. And uh, I believe I'll have a link in there as well. If you want to start a free trial of audible, um, you can get a copy of me too through there. I know a couple people have done that with previous guest books. They go check out that, that trial. If you're going to get one book to start, uh, make it this one and uh, you'll, you'll definitely not regret it. So thank you so much, Ruth, for coming on. Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, Please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.